This is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be speaking with leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is John Gabbert, the founder of Room and Board. John grew up in his father's business, Gabbert's, a popular furniture chain in the Midwest. But in the late 1970s, he split off on his own. The result was a furniture brand focused on modern design, American manufacturing, and a slow and steady pace of growth that has paid off over the decades. I spoke with John about the business book that became his Bible, why he refuses to take private equity money, and how he got away from the industry's obsession with newness. This podcast is sponsored by Laloy, maker of rugs, pillows, and wall art for the thoughtfully layered home. If you're headed to High Point this fall, stop by the Laloy showroom to see new introductions from Amber Lewis, Carrier and & Company, and other collaborators, as well as thousands of one-of-a-kind pieces. And don't just stop by. Stay a while. Because Laloy is also hosting a handful of events at High Point Market with their collaboration partners, which you can read more about and make an appointment at laloyrugs.com slash highpoint. This podcast is also brought to you by Hector Finch, the UK's premier lighting brand, renowned for its timeless designs, immaculate quality fixtures, and unparalleled customer service. See the collection in Kipps Bay's Dallas Showhouse, open from November 3rd to the 15th, or find a showroom location near you by visiting hectorfinch.com. And now, on with the show. John, I feel as though you grew up in the furniture industry, and it would be impossible to tell the story of room and board without first telling your story. And it's an interesting one. I totally grew up in the furniture industry in a time when it was the first years, it was pretty solidly what it had been for the last 20 or 30 years. And then rapid change started. When did rapid change come to the furniture industry? I think it came when the conglomerates came in thinking, oh, this is a simple business. These guys are, don't know what they're doing. We can come in and really make a killing. And they kind of screwed up everything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I think that combination with, with the shift from American manufacturing to importing, and that's, that started slowly, but it built momentum really, really quickly. Well, so so tell me tell me about tell me time frame and your and your family's business originally. So so what was what was Gabbert's originally b- before it it became whatever it is now? My dad started Gabbert's in 1946, right after the war, with his brother, and uh, it was not the furniture business then. Uh, my dad was in the tire business actually, <laughs> <laughs> and he worked for Firestone, and they started selling tires, and then that grew into appliances, and there was boats and motors for a while. <laughs> and, and my mom kind of fell in love with early American furniture in the late 50s and suggested that he try that, um, and that's how we got into the furniture business. He really started selling that product. 
So um, in the late 50s, uh, the Dayton Company opened the first indoor mall in the country called Southdale. Oh. And, and my dad bought some land across the street from that and shifted all of his furniture operation to that location. He'd been in three or four locations within the, the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. And, that, and that's really how Gabbard's developed. Um, it was a new building. He kind of applied a different approach to displaying the product by putting, putting it in room settings, um, mm. which is very, very unconventional at the time. And it just then he then he doubled the size of it, and it it, it grew from there. And and was the thought that you would come along and join the family business? Were you were you primed to come and and be part of it, or 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 were you not thinking that originally? I think I was primed, but I didn't know it. Mm. It's almost like I was I was you know graduated from high school, started in college, and I just I just kind of assumed that's what I'd do. Yeah. And, and uh, as I was going to, going to college, I was working part-time at the store, and then I was there full-time. You know, by 22 or 3, he'd kind of vacated the business, and I had it. Really? Which was, yeah, which is really strange. And I don't know if it was intentional, but something would change, and something would open up, and I said, oh, I'll take care of that. And then something else would open up, and I said, oh, I can handle that too. And pretty soon, I was, I was running the company. Um, and then by the early 70s, um, I was probably overconfident, and I basically duplicated the operation we had in Minnesota and put it in Dallas. Mm. Um, so we built a 100,000-square-foot store, a 100,000-square-foot distribution center. Wow. And hired the people, and it was absolutely crazy for him to let me do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, and but but you think he just had so much faith in in what you had done that he that he let you go ahead? I mean, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. I or was he just so exhausted from the years of trying to build a business? And right. He he become an addict to golf. He played golf every day, and he didn't play. He practiced every day and played every day. And so did you tell him, listen, I'm going to open up a hundred thousand square foot location in a, in a city that I don't even have. Did you have any, any real market intelligence around that, that market at no, the time? No, 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 no. Two things happened. One, the seventies was a tough environment for mm. lots of reasons that we're learning about today, right? Interest rates getting very high, and all, all kinds of issues. And I think the other thing that happened was I'd been taking a hard look at the industry. I'd visited Ikea in Sweden. Mm. Um, it wasn't the design that caught my attention. It's that they were in control of the process. They designed the product and had it made. Um, Gap was a leader in that in terms of clothing. You mm. weren't buying a brand. You weren't buying Levi's. You were buying Gap. Right. Right. So that was a shift that was happening where retailers were taking control of the market. And based upon my experiences in the changing furniture industry, the diminishing in quality, the focus on fashion and new, I said, what? Something's not right here. This is not where I'm going to want to spend my, my, my business years in this, this industry the way it exists. Yeah. Um, so I started changing things. And it made him really uncomfortable. 
combined with his golf buddies talking about the economy in the 70s and everybody getting really nervous about what's what's going to happen. So um, he just basically came and said, I think I'm going to split the business in two. And your younger brother can run the Minneapolis operation and you can run the Dallas operation. And I said, no, thank you. Really? Yes. Yeah. I, the, the side story of that, which gets pretty personal, which gets pretty personal, is um, also in the 70s, I, won, I was on the um, Home Furnishings Association board. Mm. I, I was in my 20s, and I think the average age was closer to 50 or older. <laughs> I'm sure. So, so I was really the young guy. And, you know, we'd have our meetings and then you'd sit and have a beer or talk. And, and most of these guys were talking about, oh, my, my old man still controls the business and he comes in every day and all of that. And I listened to those stories and I said, I don't think that's where I want to go. Hmm. Um, so I went home to my dad. This is in the mid 70s sometime, early 70s. I said, you know, I'm really liking this. I think I do it pretty well. I want control at some point. So we agreed that in 1980, I would buy his share of the business and okay. have control of the business. And that's at the point. Uh, then 1980 came and he said, oh, I don't want to do that. I won't do it. I won't do it. And this is what we're going to do instead. We're going to split the business and you can go to Dallas and run that. And your brother can stay here. And long story short, I met with attorneys. We decided there's got to be some alternative to a, long, lengthy, family-disrupting lawsuit. And the solution was I'd started a version of room and board within the Gabbard's business. And I said, okay, I'll trade my stock and I'll take that little business. And it was doing about $4 million at the time, um, not making money, but I kind of felt I could do my own thing and do something with it. So fascinating. And when you and I were talking earlier and, and you were just referring to the the high point crowd at the time, what was going on at the furniture markets back in the, I guess, in the, in the 70s that, that you just didn't think was looked like the future for you? Well, there's a couple basic principles that I was having trouble with. And one was they were trying to make it a fashion business. And I just didn't see that it was a fashion business. It was all about new, new, new. So, so that's what was what was fashion related. Was they were constantly I introducing new product every season? Exactly, and that combined with getting the product made overseas. Um, you probably, I mean, most people don't realize the seventies, like the dominant style was really Spanish Mediterranean. So I, it was just like it was strange. Just felt like it didn't relate to people's homes. It didn't relate to. Well, and so where did that come from? How did how did Spanish Mediterranean become the style of the market? <laughs> there's, this, there's a story I was told about the industry getting together. And this, this, this person was asked, um, I think Ralph Lauren, someone had hired Ralph Lauren to design furniture, right? Mm. And somebody asked him, well, does this make any sense? And this, the answer was, well, you know, he's in touch with American people and their designs and what they like. So it might be really good to respond to what people want. Mm. And the home furnishings executive general response was, no, no, no. We decide what the American public wants. We being the furniture industry. <laughs> so we don't need to ask America <laughs> what it wants. We tell them what no. it wants. 
we tell them what they want. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they and they want Spanish Mediterranean food. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so so I bought this operation, and it kind of stayed that way for a while. And I must say, it was some years where I was like, I was wandering. I was not trying to figure out what to do. So I had room and board. I had a wholesale showroom to sell the designers. I bought a design studio that was well known in town. We had a kids' specialty operation. I, I had a series of things that I was doing, and then I took a hard look at life. Right? I just took a hard look at life, yeah. and I said. What do I want to do? What do I want to do for the rest of my life? I had young children that I had to get through school. I, you know, had all of those obligations. Sure. And I, I basically sat down with myself and said, I really want to do a few things. I want to work with really people I like and trust every day. I want to sell product that I'm really proud of. And I want to do it in a way that's fair to everybody. Those kind of objectives led to a series of other decisions that is kind of the foundation of room and board today. And we basically did a pivot. We just changed. We stopped importing product. We found all of these great little American manufacturers. I, I mean, the original premise was basically there's a lot of young people out there that want a little better design. They don't want the typical... French, whatever, or, <laughs> or English, they wanted something more contemporary, but mm. they didn't have much money. And more time than money is kind of what the IKEA model is, right? So I yeah. don't mind bringing it home and assembling it if I think I'm going to save some money and, and whatever. Um, and we turned around and said, well, this is, a, this is a bit later now. We're not early 70s, we're into the late 80s. And mm. all of these people, it, their license changed. They're so well-educated but they've got a little more money than they have time. They've right. now worked their way up. They're a doctor, they're a lawyer, they're whatever. And we were really surprised as we introduced better quality furniture with full service, how well they reacted to that. It, it really honestly surprised us. And then we found American manufacturers um, that kind of had the same vision and supported what we were doing. Um, McCurry Manufacturing, McCurry Modern. I don't know if you know them, mm -hmm. but uh, they were they were small when we were small, and we kind of grown up together. And they just focused on making great product at a great price, and it was a perfect fit for us. So many of our first manufacturers, when we were doing ten million dollars, are the same people that are supplying us doing six hundred million dollars um, because they've grown as we've grown, which is kind of what a true partnership is. Um, you know, it's been mutually beneficial. Well, and and it sounds as though, again, in that in that spirit of partnership, it sounds as though you were very open about where your business was, and and you you expected the same from your from your partners. They would open their books. It, it, do I have that right? Yep. It was it was open book with each other. How do we work together to create the best value for the customer and for both companies to be successful? Um, and if that's your starting point, it makes it pretty mm. easy to agree on what the product should be or what the price should be. And, and, and we got completely away from this idea of fashion and product changing. Some of those products that we introduced in the late 80s, we still make today. <laughs> Same product. Tell me what that really looks like when you say to a potential manufacturer in Vermont or 
Wisconsin, look, you know, here, here's what we're making. Here's what our margins are. I mean, what would you share? How would you even begin that conversation? Oh, I think we begin that conversation about this is the kind of product we think we can make it this classic design. It's long-term. This is the price range we're trying to hit. Mm -hmm. Is this possible? What things can we do to make sure it's the best value possible? Um, what are the alternatives in terms of materials and source of supply and, and all of that? Um, and so, you know, the importing was well on its way at, that, at this time, obviously. That's what most people were doing. So this is a very um, contrary point of view to take. Right. And they were, they were aware that they were like, fighting. And they were struggling to, to have places to sell their product. Right? Sure. They were a manufacturer, but they didn't really have a true partner. They had commission salespeople out trying to sell little stores that were struggling. Um, and to have somebody that was really committed to them, I think, made a big difference. Right. So part of the fashion or part of the new introductions, people always explain to me, well, we have to have something new to come to market because all the designers and the retailers, they all want to see what's new. They mm. all want it, right? I mean, so yeah. what's your answer to that? Well, I don't know what the manufacturer's answer is to that, but I think they're so caught up in it. I remember years ago, one market, I, I said, I'm not going to ask what's new. I said, I'd like to see your best-selling product. Mm. And the answer was usually, let me show you the new. <laughs> 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 you know, it... it um, yeah. I think it's probably driven by the retailers mm. or the designers thinking it's about new um, fashion. I mean, the shelter magazine certainly pushed new. Yeah. I think it's a practical look at how many people have a house want to change all of their product to create a new look periodically. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm sitting at a table here that's made in Vermont. I've owned it for 25 years. Right. Right. And yeah. I, I plan to own it the rest of my life. I mean, <laughs> yeah. there's nothing about it that's, that should make it change. Um, so this this going against the grain, no no pun intended to all of your, your wood furniture there, but you were going in a very different direction. And 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 as you say, you were you were recognizing that these that this this younger audience had suddenly become. This was in the early days of of yuppies. We didn't we didn't know what that was originally. The young, urban, yep. upwardly mobile urban professionals. Uh, they they suddenly, as to your point, started to have a lot more money, and uh, and that meant that they could buy this because we assume the American made furniture, particularly at the quality level that you were making it was going to be more expensive than the Asian counterpart, we assume, yes? Maybe, but very slightly. Mm. Very slightly. Okay. And I and I, I mean I'll, I'll digress your moment, but I think partly it's the way people analyzed it. If you mm. if you if you looked at what you paid for it and said, I'm gonna calculate my gross margin on that, even if you add in freight, you got a way better gross margin on the imported product. But if you looked at your entire P&L mm. and said, oh, how about the freight factor? How about the amount of inventory I have to carry? How about the returns that I get because of the quality of the product? <laughs> right. if, if, you add, if you add all of that up, I, I think, in fact, the difference is not 
very significant, if significant at all. So to your point, the unit cost might appear to be lower. But if you're just looking at the unit cost and not factoring in all of the other items related, the freight, the shipping, the returns, the damages, et cetera. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Okay. So you felt that the American-made furniture could be comparable and better quality. And you, to your point, you were just doing what you wanted to do, which was to find these great companies and and become partners, right? And And- grow the business together. Exactly, exactly. And the long-term benefit is, is you ended up building loyal customers that they found out they had better product. Mm. You know, if you live with something really good quality, you start to appreciate it by living with it. Um, if you kind of end up living with something that's not so good, you learn <laughs> to not like it so much. <laughs> We're taking a quick break from the show to remind you about Hector Finch. For over 30 years, the British-born Hector Finch has been providing lighting to designers and architects around the world. Hector's rich knowledge of historical and period lighting, along with his very practical engineering mind, informs the collection throughout its range, which is underscored by his understanding of both period and functionality. Discover Hector Finch at hectorfinch.com. Dot com. And now, back to the show. So tell me when this experiment started to really pay off. So when did you start to see, wow, this is actually working? I would say it started really paying off 90, 91, 92. And, and at that point, what is it that you were selling? So to your earlier question, what were your best sellers at the time? We started out making a really simple Parsons table mm. out of two inch industrial steel. And then we said, we said, who can make the best possible top mm. to put on top of this? So we found the wood manufacturer that could make the top in maple and cherry and walnut and whatever. And then we find a stone manufacturer that can make a granite top. And then we find the best glass manufacturer. And pretty soon we have 12 sizes of this table and the choice of tops for everyone and was one of our very best sellers in the beginning and it is today. And in and in those days, how was the word getting out about what you were doing? I think primarily word of mouth. Okay. And we had we had a great location in, in Edina, Minnesota, which was our primary store um, across the street from Gabbert's, by the way. using your dad's strategy to open a (laughs) shop across the street from your big competitor okay Um, and Everett's really wasn't a competitor because we were doing something very different quite different very different yeah exactly and we probably I mean almost made a point to be doing something different not to be infringing right right Um, yeah and it worked out because our alternative became kind of really a real real strength in terms of what we were doing. And so at that point, if I remember correctly, you really weren't looking to high point for your direction or your sense of what was going on in the industry. You weren't going to market by then. Yeah, we had a few manufacturers that's displayed there, like Mm. McCreary, like McCreary Modern. Um, But we we weren't going to the traditional 
Thomasville, Bernhardt's, whatever manufacturers. Um, no, we, we were kind of looking at our customer and say that who should lead us, not what other people have, not what the manufacturers are putting out. We said, let's look at our customers and let them tell us. And so the, the 1990s, the early 90s, it's, it, it starts to, to really work. You can see that. When do you start to think about expanding and with, with what resources? Because uh, rumor has it you don't, uh, you don't like uh, private equity money or uh, <laughs> other. <laughs> we don't like private equity money. We don't have any debt whatsoever. My goodness. Uh, I, I had an early on experience with the bank when we did have debt. And they show up at your door one day and said, you know, we've been, we had this loan in place for five years or whatever, but we'd like our money back tomorrow. Really? Yeah. So when did that happen? <laughs> oh, that was that was in the um, I guess it was the late eighties. Late okay. 80s. You know, it was a large bank. They've made some right. level. They've made a decision, higher level up. But certain people don't meet certain criteria. We don't want. We don't want the risk. So I said, hmm. huh. <laughs> I don't want. I don't want that to happen. I went and got a second. <laughs> I went and got a second mortgage on my house, and we made it. We made it through. Wow. Um, and we didn't take any money out. We put everything back in the business. Mm. Um, and, and I think we were going to, well, how did it, how did it start to grow? And it started to grow um, because uh, we knew we had unique product like these mm. steel beds. And uh, there was a magazine. It was called Apartment Life. Probably right. be- way before you. <laughs> and you could run these little tiny ads in the back, you know, little two inch by two inch, and we'd run some beds there. And um, the receptionist, who now still works for us, um, you know, she started selling a lot of beds. I'd walk <laughs> in in the morning, she said, oh, I sold three beds this morning, right? And they were not For people that were calling up from the ad. We're calling up from the ads. <laughs> I love exactly, it. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and pretty soon there was enough that we hired, we had someone full-time. That's what they did. We called it shop from home, right? Yeah. And, and, and at the same time, we had the belief that back in the 70s, the American manufacturers, nobody wanted to give customers information about the product for fear that they would go somewhere else and get it at a lower price. Right. The 800 North Carolina number, all of that. Well, we said, we have a unique product. We don't really need to do that. So let's give the customers as much information as we possibly can about the product who makes it, all the information, all the materials. And, and so when you went in our stores in those early days, there would be a black and white little pamphlet that would talk about that particular collection. And people would collect those and take them home and, and have the information. And we just found out people really loved them. Mm. And then we started doing them in color and photography. And then pretty soon they said, why don't put it all in one? So pretty soon we had a 300 and some page catalog featuring Ooh. all of our all of our product, right? All the prices, all the information, and then we started getting even more orders in our in our shop from home. And this was all over the phone. This was all this was all all over the phone. We had a bunch more people to take orders. So our trend. Well, two things happened. One, our transition to the web was really easy, right? Because right. we basically took that catalog and put it online. It, it, yeah, yeah. it wasn't a, a lot of product being dropped and changed and who's doing what. I mean, it was just really straightforward to put it on 
online. And at the same time, we started seeing that we could do, we were doing deliveries like the people in New York or mm. San Francisco. And those deliveries became significant enough that we said, dumb, right? Let's look, <laughs> at, putting a, let's look at putting a store there. Right. So we went to New York and um, found a location in Soho. It was actually an old mobile showroom, and we opened a store yeah. um, in 2004. And then we opened one in San Francisco shortly after it, 2005, and our business went crazy. We couldn't keep up. We did too much too fast, um, but we did eventually catch up, and those are two of our six most successful stores today still. So when you did too much too fast, what, what happened, and, and how did you work your way out of that? Well, it was, I mean, it's a little like the pandemic, actually, in that our manufacturers could not produce enough product. Yeah. It was simply the lead times became long, right? You wanted mm. a special order or a sofa, and it was, you know, four months, five right. months. Right. They just couldn't do it. So it was, a, it was a supply issue that we had created for ourselves. But we solved it eventually. And but, the, but this was natural demand. So, I mean, unlike the pandemic when everyone's locked up at home, I mean, this is just people discovering you, right, and, and wanting the product. Yeah, exactly. No, it was, that, it was our leap forward, that particular saying we can go to these other markets and we can be successful right and then i guess the the financial crisis comes was back in 2008 2009 was that a a terribly difficult time for you were you were you hit hard during that period yeah we were hit hard i think like everyone mm. but we were still profitable i think we pride ourselves in being able to ride through those periods and come out stronger because there are opportunities especially in real estate locations in a period like that. So our, our, if, if you look at our sales growth, you'd see that, oh, bad economy, remember, it jumped. We had have, we have a sales increase coming out of that was pretty significant. And, and why would that be? So, so make the connection for me. The connection was there were, there were really great real estate opportunities and more available space. So that's when we opened up a store in Washington, D.C., for example. Or Los Angeles is when we opened, right? Both of those stores, which are really great stores for us, opened 2009, 2010. And the new locations were a particularly great value, mm. right? Because yeah. somebody, somebody was in trouble financially. I think the Washington, D.C. store is a great example. It was on the market for a certain price. There were like levels of people trying to do things. The number was a high number. It was a fairly expensive property. And I got a call from the person and he says, well, I'm the, actually, I'm the owner. You've been talking to all these other people, but mm. I'm the owner. And this is the price we're asking. If you can close immediately, I'll sell it to you for half price. Wow. You know, if you look at the people that in our industry that have struggled, it's usually not a short-term event that does something. It's mm. like not managing it financially very well for a fairly long period of time. And that becomes a problem. Well, and is is that your sense of what happened? So, so many of the brands that we mentioned earlier, the Henredons, the Thomasvilles, they all came together at one point. Uh, they were part of, was it the FBI or something? They all were furniture brands, right. international or something at one point, exactly. right? It, it was all just such an unfortunate disaster, uh, for, yes. for, right? For a host of reasons. But But why do you think that didn't work? Or what, what, what do you think happened to all those great brands? I 
think it's not like the private equity people never being successful or almost mm. never being successful buying home from they just don't understand the industry they don't know what mm. they're doing they don't know they don't know it's a it's a goofy little fragmented industry and i think they just didn't know what they were doing it's that simple so and, and I mean, as you were saying earlier, and, and this is often the knock against private equity, just like you're saying, so often right. they come in, they think the furniture industry is clueless, they don't know what they're doing. We're we're these smart financial yeah. guys, right? We're gonna come in, we're gonna put some efficiencies in place, we're gonna sell off all that real estate that you've been buying, right? Make the, right. <laughs> make the money from that. Then we're gonna lease it back to the company. So the poor company now suddenly has all these leases on all these stores that they used to own, right? Yeah, exactly. And they take, oh, they take these stores and they say, wow, I know you've got 10 stores. If we do another 10 and they do the same volume, here's the results. It's great. Right. Well, the next 10 don't do the same volume. They do 20% less or 30% less. And that's the difference. Yeah. You know, they had experienced people in the older stores. They got new people in the other stores. I mean, this is a business that's very much about people. And, mm. and hundreds of little decisions. You know, back in the 70s, one person stands out in the mm. industry. And it's, this is, his name is Elliot Wood. Elliot Wood started Heritage in 1937. He founded a company called Founders, which is a very, my favorite furniture manufacturer from North Carolina, all time. He just said, I'm going to make the best upholstered chair for the best price that's ever been made. It's the hardest thing to make in the furniture industry. And I think the lessons from him were several. He started his business in an unusual way. He said, I just want to sell the best retailers in every city. So he went around the country himself, mm. identified who the best retailer was. In our case, it was Gabbert's. Mm. And he said, I'm going to sell you and only you. And you're going to have the best product available. And that's what he did. No commission salespeople, no anything. He just and I'm going to make chairs and all I'm going to do is make chairs. And he paid attention to every detail to create the best value for the customer. He didn't have a showroom. For a week of market, he cleared out part of his factory, had some things displayed and had apples for people. <laughs> right, that, that was it. That was the, the total of his expense. Um, I remember going there several times and you'd say, well, let's see what's new. He said, well, what's new is the same chair that was new six months ago, <laughs> which is the same chair that was new <laughs> a year ago. I'm sensing a theme here, John. I'm and, sensing a theme. <laughs> and he said, we've not made it yet because we believe in supplying the special orders on time first and then stock. And then we start making the new once we have the capacity to do that. He was really a genius in terms of what he brought to the industry. So he was a he was a stick to your knitting kind of guy, right? Yep. Yep. If, if Jim Collins were going to write about somebody in the industry that did it right, he would pick out <laughs> Elliot Wood. <laughs> well, and so we should we should talk about Jim Collins and we should explain for listeners who might not be familiar if they if they haven't read Built to Last or or Good to Great. Right. Jim Jim Collins, this this wonderful researcher 
and and author who who looked at with with a team of people that he brought in who looked at I think it was originally thirteen hundred let's say publicly traded companies yep. right yes. yep. over history and really analyzed what made what helped those companies make the leap from good to great what what made them last uh and, and how much of it was the leadership and how much of it was and and what he found well i mean what tell me what resonated with you about the jim collins books he clearly believed that you got to get the right people first uh, right. that was one of his premises um one of the ones i love is he said you got to confront the brutal facts right? right you just have to look at it openly and say this is what the real facts are don't kid yourself that doing what hasn't worked again and again is going <laughs> to work again, right? Um, he, called, he had something which he called the hedgehog theory, which yes. is comparing it to foxes. He said, it's just like stick to your knitting. Do what you do. Don't, don't get carried away doing all of these other things. Um, and he also talked about discipline a lot. They would mm. have a culture of discipline where you just you were just playing really good at what you did, which like brings to mind um, Elliot Wood for me and that he was just really good at what he did and he wasn't afraid to focus on that and do it really well. So those are the things. And then he talks a lot about the type of leader and that it's not the flamboyant, you know, headline kind of leader. It's the, it's the kind of very almost self-conscious, focused mm. person that's way more interested in the success of the company than they are promoting themselves. Yes. Um, so that's what he referred to as level five leadership. Um, and I think we talked about built the last, which was the first book he wrote. Yeah. And then he, I just, I just was glancing at it and then he wrote, I've got it right here. As a matter of fact, um, <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And then he wrote one called good to great, which he yeah. then came back and said, well, this should have been the first book. Built right. The last was the second book. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so I, you know, I thought it was interesting. I, he was, he was like our Bible. That's what we would refer to as we think about what do we want to do in our business is we'd refer to his his learnings from his studies of all of those companies. So it's really interesting. And and so much of what he talked about as well was really trying to focus on what you might have a shot at being the best at. Yes, right? absolutely. And do away with everything else that you couldn't compete and and just focus on where you might be the best. Yes, absolutely. And he talked about that. It could be anything. He said, if you're going to be a third grade school teacher, why don't you try to be the best third grade school teacher, right? It doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter yeah. what the field is or what your role is within the company. So that, that was very much a, a focus. The other interesting thing, which I was just picking up on when I picked up his book a second time, was what he talks about at the end is there's usually some kind of technical accelerator, right? Mm. And for us, it was the internet. It changed the industry and how people shop completely. And I think if we hadn't had done all the other things pretty well, I'm not sure we'd be making it today, but we were there in place when the web really became a, a big focus. And much of our business is based upon taking advantage of that. Um, we do a significant portion of our business in places where we don't have stores. So do you have a sense of what percentage of your business is done online today versus in your stores? We have a we know where it's written. We know mm. where the order is placed. Yeah. And that's 65 to 70% online. 
What we don't know precisely is did the customer visit the store previously? Right. Or in what period before, if we, and we, and we know a lot of cases if they did, but we don't know if that was two years before the purchase. Right. It was to make the purchase. Yeah. It's hard to get that information specifically. We're taking a quick break from the show to remind you about Leloy. For almost 20 years, Leloy has made its name not only in home textiles at all price points, but also in customer service. Members of the trade have dedicated Leloy sales representatives to answer their needs, with easy online ordering and fast shipping directly from Leloy's warehouses. Learn more at LeloyRugs.com. That's L-O-L-O-I, Rugs.com. For an inside look at all things Leloy, follow at Leloy Rugs on Instagram and TikTok. And now, back to the show. I'm fascinated by the internet conversation in part because we were just talking this week about the announcement that one of the big TJX brands, Home Goods. Right, which is a which is a very different kind of home store, yeah. obviously, than yeah, room yeah. and board, but a big home store that did two billion in sales in the last quarter. And they've announced that they're they're shutting down their e-commerce operations. They're they're turning off their website. No, that's oh, it was a small percentage of our business, and really it was too, it was too much of a hassle to manage inventory for the site. <laughs> and, and and honestly, we we all were sort of in in disbelief. That a yes. company in 2023 could even make such an announcement. I know. Was it was it shocking to to you? You're you're nodding your head, going, "Yeah, well, yeah, of, of course it's shocking." I mean, it doesn't make no sense at all. Putting yourself in their shoes, what what do you think they were thinking or are thinking? I assume they looked at the numbers and they looked at the size of the staff and the dollars they're spending and related it to sales and said doesn't make sense. It just is sort of staggering. Bewildering is really what it is. It is is bewildering. Right? Because to your point, so along comes the internet for your business and transforms your business, right? It does. Yes. Completely. And and interestingly, I mean, you, I was just on your site earlier in anticipation of our conversation. And here you are talking about the return policy and the the fixed rate shipping you can do. And it seems as if you're trying to immediately address so many of the challenges that furniture companies are facing. Yeah. Yeah. We have an incredibly reasonable delivery. We deliver with our own people. You know, it's full service delivery, no matter what. I mean, they they come in and they lay the rug where you want it, and they place the furniture, and we're not unpacking it in people's homes. And right. no, I mean, full service delivery is incredibly important. You mentioned a couple of times during our conversation, salespeople on commission. Now, are salespeople not on commission at Room and Board? Tell me about how that works. Oh, I don't believe in commission at all for anybody. It just, it makes no sense to me. You know, if, if someone's on commission, they're working for themselves, right? They're right. not working for you. Okay. So we hire someone just like an accountant, just like anybody, and you pay them a fair salary. Mm-hmm. And their job is to, which is to help satisfy customers, to help customers make the best decisions for them. 
It may be not buying the most expensive piece. It's maybe buying the less expensive piece. On commission, you don't think that way, right? What's commission? Right. You're always thinking commission. Um, I mean, there's the other benefit of those people, then it becomes a team. They help each other. Mm-hmm. If someone's on commission, how often do they call over another salesperson and say, hey, can you help us with this project? I know you've done this before in this kind of location. That never happens. It happens in our organization all the time. So I, I just think commission is a faulty efficiency. Do some of your salespeople have an issue with that? Are there are there challenges with not having commission? No, because we don't. There's some people that just they just love being on commission. They love the competition. They right. love being best. Yeah. They, I mean, I think some people get energized by commission, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. They don't work for us. They, they just <laughs> they don't work for room they and just, board. They just don't work for room and board. It's not it's not the kind of person that fits our culture. Um, the people that fit our culture that really are there to help people. That's what they get the, the benefit from. Whether that's helping customers or helping their fellow employees for doing other things uh, within the organization, it's just a huge focus of ours. It's who you hire. It's it's what you believe in. Um, again, it's kind of back to Jim Collins in many ways. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, a, a lot of sound principles. So much of what he focused on was just getting the right people on the bus. And, right, and, I, exactly. right? and I feel That's like it. that turns out to be the key in so many areas. And listen, it's it's hard today to get great people, right? And all this crazy hybrid yep. work and everything else, I know that that's, that's thrown the whole world into into a tizzy as far as the number of hours people want to work and where they want to go and not wanting to commute yep. and everything else. I, yep. I get it. I'm sure that's yep. presenting challenges for you. Does it mean that you have to pay more or like how have you found a solution to that? I mean, how have you gotten people back? Even before the pandemic, we had lots of really flexible schedules for people. Mm. We had okay. lots of full-time three-day employees, right? Because it suited their life. And we would it would let us get coverage where we needed it, right? I right. Mean, as you know, retail traffic is not consistent. Yeah. Right? Saturdays are going to still be the busiest day. Um, so by having a group of people that are are willing to work, they want to work three days, and they're pretty flexible of when they can work. We can shift our 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 um our, our service level to customers to meet meet the needs. Yeah. But the trick is, but the trick is, it's a full time job. You get full benefits. You get yes. all, all of those things, right? And we mentioned the internet being such a big accelerator for the business. Have designers become a, a, an, an important part of the business, and and do they come in and and a, a trade program is that meaningful for room and board? Um, I think designers have always been an important part of our business, and mm-hmm. they they probably a growing portion of our business. We do not give designers discounts based on the premise that we're fair with everyone, right? We have right. one price, one price, and that's it. And if a design, and we think the true professional designer charges for their time. Mm-hmm. And part of their goal is to get the customer the best possible price they can on whatever product they're providing, not try to sell them something where they get a bunch of markup. So for the designers that kind of buy that concept, um, we're a good source because we make it easy for them because we take care of everything. Mm. We're good at follow-up. We're good at getting them a product, the quality we're happy with. We take the returns, all, all of that. 
Do you think that designers wish you gave them a discount? Some do, depending upon their business model. As you know, there's different business models. Different, each designer has their own little business Thousands models. of them. There's thousands of different yeah. models from what I've seen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but when they deal with us, they get one model. Right. What do you make of the sad bankruptcy of, of Mitchell Gold and Bob Williams and, and Klausner and, and some of the other North Carolina companies? What's your, what's your take? Wow. I mean, it's, it's hard, right? Where we are right now, it's hard to measure having just run through the pandemic when yeah. demand went absolutely through the roof. Right. And I think if anyone thought that was going to continue, <laughs> they, they were totally misguided, right? It just was not going to continue. I, I think most of those failures were bred from a series of bad decisions over a, a fairly long period of time. I, I think home furnishing stores don't die easily. Mm. <laughs> I think it's it's really sudden. It's really a slow, painful death. Sometimes the accelerator is the private equity firm that comes in and does dumb things faster because they put more money into it. <laughs> but uh, but you've got a very I, high opinion of private equity. I can see that, John, <laughs> and I love that. <laughs> and I'm sure there's more coming. I'm sure there's more coming because I think we've got some significant corrections happening. I mean, you can't have mortgage rates go from virtually zero to 8% in a short period of time and not have it affect our industry very right. directly in one way or another. Um, you can't have banks fail because of commercial loans and not have it affect our industry in one way or another. I mean, it's, it's on and on with these things that are going to affect us. Yeah. Um, so I think we're going to see more. No, I, I, I agree. I think we are going to see more. It, it, it's just a matter of, of when. I wonder, knowing that that's coming, what do you do operating a business to prepare for that? Well, in our case, we just keep doing the same things we've been doing. We do all the little details, maybe even better than we've done them before. We don't take risks. Uh, we make sure we're profitable. But it can be a painful process. Our suppliers have to cut back, right? I mean, it, it, it works its way through the system. Yeah. Um, and, and you have to accept that and have everybody adjust and come out stronger the other end. You, you've been through cycles. And, and, yes, exactly. Yeah, right. And come out the other side. One of the reasons, John, that people point to, and, and Mitchell Gold raised this, and, and, and others have raised this with us, there isn't a better exit strategy alternative than private equity coming and buying you out, right? So when you think about an exit strategy, or do you think about an exit strategy, that's when private equity seems to, to make the most sense. That's when people pull the trigger, whether they have mixed feelings about it or, or, or not. Yeah. I, I think the transition out is a challenge, and, and we think about it. And I think if you back Mitchell, he would have taken a little more time. And, <laughs> and I think he said this in his interview with you, that, oh, we didn't look at an ESOP. We didn't look at buying to an investor that appreciated steady business, solid growth, um, that yeah. point of view. I, I mean, the, the private equity guys come with a story, right? Yeah. We can make you... We can grow fast. We can get you a greater return. We can all of these things. And I think it's just being realistic about what what the options really are. Because I think there are way better alternatives than 
the, the classic private equity, uh, which is about let's let's make it grow fast and we'll sell it for even more money in five years or seven years or some short term point of view. Yeah. But for you and 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 your team in in thinking about it, I mean, would it would an ESOP make sense versus private equity, or would some of these other? I mean, or or do you imagine a, a real partner coming in? We're exploring it. We don't have an answer. Okay, but I can tell you for sure, it's not going to be your classic private equity. It's just not that. That's not on the list. Okay. So you're not selling out to Blackstone. I'm not going to see that headline, no. room no. and board acquired <laughs> by Blackstone, no. KKR. No, you're, you're, you're no. saying no to that. None of that. Okay. A colleague of mine not long ago was talking with someone on your team, funny enough, about what comes after mid-century modern. This is this is the question that hangs over our industry. So many businesses have found such great success, design within reach, your business, others in this mid-century modern look and and feel. Do you have a clear sense of what could possibly come come next to to equal what that has delivered for your business and others? Yeah, I think I do. I think I do because I don't really think that that mid-century modern, I mean, classic mid-century modern was an influence um, in terms of product that we have. But I would say the heart of our assortment is not at all about mid-century modern. It is designs that are referencing classic periods of design. And Mm -hmm. to my mind, classic periods are those pieces, things that focus on the simplicity of design, the function of the product, the beauty of the materials. It's not about ornate. And and to me, that's what the future of design is because that suits how people live, right? It suits the function of living. Um, We see home and the furniture we provide as a background for life. Hmm. It's not the design itself, right? I mean, if, if, if you looked at my house, you'd say, oh, you see the art first. You see the little collections of things that have. Right. You see the photographs yeah. that are memories of things. The furniture is not the first thing you see. It's it's kind of the background. So I, I, the contrast would be RH, actually. Yeah. If you walk in their store versus ours, like it's totally different. Opposites, direct opposites. And I expect maybe their customers are quite opposites in terms of their values. I would think. I would think the yeah. RH customer does want to show off quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and 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 what do you make of that operation? I mean, it is different from yours, obviously, but but what do, what do you make of the success that they've uh, had? I think time will tell. Um, I mean, I watch their stock, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really overvalued, is my perception. Okay. Um, you know, I would not buy their stock ever. Okay. If that represents anything. Where, as an example, I own some Ethan Allen stock. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, nice dividend. Uh, Farouk yeah. seems to yeah. be managing a nice business there. Yeah. Sol- solid business, fair value, um, vertically integrated well. They're just a nice, solid business that's fairly priced. Yeah. So I wonder, as we, as we wrap up, John, we, we talked about the internet being such a big accelerant for the business. And and recently, we thought the world was going to change so much coming out of COVID. Honestly, 
it feels remarkably the same in so many ways. It does. It right? does. I mean, yeah. I don't I don't think it's quite as transformed as we thought it was going to be. I feel like retail, some people say, oh my gosh, yes, I just want the in-person retail experience and they're coming back for that. Other people shifted online during COVID and they're they're comfortable with that now. But but I wonder what feels different or what feels like it's the big driver today? Do we do we think that artificial intelligence is going to play a major role in our industry? Is there is there something that's bubbling up in your business that feels different from, from just a few years ago? No, it really doesn't feel any different from a few years ago. I think I think there's, there's goofy little things, right? Because people's hours are different. So mm. their shopping pattern is different. When, when they place orders is different. Um, <laughs> little things like that, but it's, it's basically, I think it's the same. Um, you know, it, at, I think you've got a group of people that are totally loyal to who we are. They trust our product completely. They don't need to go to the store. Some people need to test it. Some right. people just, I just want to see it, touch it and feel it. I mean, everybody's different in terms of what their expectations are. And, and new customers like to come to the store to test the store out, to get experience, to have help. So it depends upon a lot of things, but we don't have stores everywhere, right? We don't yeah. have. Um, so if you happen to live near a store, that's nice. And we're in major markets. We usually have one store in a major market. Right. Um, so I don't know. I don't see a big change um, of significance in terms of how the industry has been affected. Yeah. I think the most positive one maybe is they spent enough time at home that home has become more important. Mm. That's probably the most significant change. And they said, yeah, having, having the right settings outside and using that space different is a really nice positive thing. And they're, they're spending more money on that. And, and you think that that, that that lingers? You think that people... I do. Yes. I do. Yeah. Well, John, I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful for your time. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you. Great. I've enjoyed talking to you, Dennis. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to keep up with the latest design industry news, visit us online at businessofhome.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter, browse job listings, and join our BOH Insider community for access to online workshops, a free print subscription, and much more. If you have a note for the podcast, drop us a line at podcast at businessofhome.com. If you're enjoying these conversations, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to discover the show. This show was produced by Fred Nikolaus and edited by Michael Castaneda. I'm Dennis Scully. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week.